Well, hello again. Today we begin a short sermon series titled Life on the Line. Over the last few months, I've mentioned how our lives have two phases. We have the dot phase and the line phase. If you are to plot your life on a timeline, like you see there on our banner for the series, um, your present life is like a dot. You're born, you live, and you will die. Your life now is a dot. But it is also a line. Your soul, and as we'll see in the weeks ahead, your future body will live on for all eternity. That is the line phase. Now, the problem is we hardly live lives in the dot life with this line life in view. And so what I hope we experience in this sermon series is that we will grow in, in knowledge regarding the line aspect of reality. And as we grow in our desire to, to, to live for the line, not the dot, um, our lives will be forever changed. We will see that how our dot lives are thoroughly changed for good when we live life for the line. Today's sermon is titled, Life in View of Heaven. Let me ask you, did you wake up any day this past week thinking about and delighting in heaven? Did you? Probably not. I didn't either. And I knew I was preaching on this topic. So, But God wants us to think upon and delight upon what is coming for us for it changes how we live today. We come to live with great purpose and power and perseverance and happiness when we live life in view of heaven. Today's passage comes from the second to last chapter in the Bible, from the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. Here, God shows us, shows us his plan. What will eternal life on the line look like if you are in Christ? Well, it's amazing. Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, then we must know his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word to us. May we receive it um, by your spirit as true from heaven. May our lives delight in what you have in store for us. And may we be urged all the more uh, to live for the line and not the dot, we pray. Amen. Well, I used to race motorcycles, not those dirt bikes, you know, riding in the dirt and hitting the big jumps. That just looks too crazy. Uh, no, I did what's called a road racing on the asphalt racetracks. You know, they're like two and a half, three miles long, and you're going really fast on those super bikes, and you're, you're going in through the turns. You're leaning over so far, your, your knee is dragging on the ground on a little plastic puck. Well, I used to do that. I didn't earn much money. Uh, I did win a fair share of races, but... Also, my nickname was Crash, so that gives you some idea <laughs> of, of what would happen some, sometimes. Now, one of the keys to going really fast is to be really smooth in the turns. And to be smooth in the turns, you need to, to employ a certain technique. Instead of looking at the ground right in front of you, you needed to be looking 20 or 30 yards ahead of you and then making micro adjustments as you're looking ahead so that you can hit the apex of the turn within like one inch every time. But picture this, if you just look straight below you as you're racing at 80, 90 miles an hour in a turn, you just can't help but twitch left or right and you almost never hit the apex. To go fast, you need to be focused far ahead. Does that make sense? What I'd like to propose is that God wants us to live our lives like a motorcycle racer, yes. <laughs> With our eyes lifted up to what's farther ahead. The Christian life is much like an endurance motorcycle race in which you must battle against the twists and turns of this glorious yet fallen world. And our tendency, is it not, is to look straight down at what's right in front of us, we become preoccupied with the ups and downs of life. We get wrapped up in our own comfort or selfish endeavors, and the handlebars of our lives begin to jitter and shake. And you know, I've, I've yet to meet a genuine Christian who doesn't want to grow in Christ's likeness, to, to put off the old self and put on the new self in Christ Jesus. But isn't it true, we often settle for half measures. Well, guess what? That's the context of this book of Revelation. It was written to seven churches in Asia Minor who had lost their way. They had settled for half measures. They were lukewarm in their commitment to Christ and his kingdom. They had their eyes down on the hot asphalt road of life. They needed to have their eyes lifted from the dot phase to the line phase of living. And guess what? The book of Revelation does just that. It lifts our eyes to the biggest promise that we could ever fix our eyes upon as we steer our lives upon this hazardous road of life. The promise is what Tolkien speaks of when, when he says that God will make everything sad come untrue. With our short dot lives, we as human beings try to build ourselves a happy little home on this earth. But listen, this earth, as good as it is, and it can be great, it can never deliver you the joys and the happiness 
that we truly long for. But, but God has a new home planned for his people. And his home isn't a dot home. It is on the line of eternity where you will spend the rest of your existence. And if we could just grasp how wonderful his promised new home is, then our eyes would be lifted up through the corners of life. Like an expert motorcycle racer, our lives would be smoother and faster, more joyful and satisfying if we would just focus on what our loving Heavenly Father in Heaven wants us to focus upon. That's why Jesus says, write these words down. He wants us to hear them today. So let's just do that. The big idea for us to embrace is this. We must lift our eyes and focus upon our eternal home to come. We will do this under two headings. First is the delightful details, then the persevering promises. With this new home, God has promised nothing less than everything your human heart longs for. I know that's a big statement. But we see that in these delightful details. The first one is this. Heaven will be a new physical reality. Verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The Greek word translated here, heaven, is the same word for sky. And that is John's meaning here. He's not talking about heaven where, where God is right now. He's talking about heaven, as in the, where the stars are. John saw a new world, a new earth with new stars in heaven. And it's helpful to compare verse 1 here with Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. The very first words of the Bible we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible opens with the first heaven and the earth being created. Then in Revelation 21, read that a new heaven and earth is coming. Why? Because the first one, the first heaven and earth had what? What happened to it? It passed away. Why this language of death? Because, well, in chapter 3 of Genesis, it didn't take very long. We see that sin has subjected this world to decay and disorder and death. Toil and weariness, sickness and pain, unfulfilled longings, ever-present hardship. That is the world we live in now with our dot lives. And you feel it every day, don't you? So just as Jesus passed away and was resurrected and ascended in new life, so too this world one day. So understand this. Heaven, ultimately, is a physical reality. And so if you're a Christian here today and you were to die today, um, we would miss you. Um, But guess what? Your spirit would depart your body and it would be present with the Lord as your body laid in the ground, as you await the great resurrection, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But you would be in Jesus's presence, experience comfort and joy today. But you would be eagerly awaiting the final act, the great day to come when Christ recreates a new home on a new earth with a new heaven and on that day God will give you a resurrected body and you will dwell in perfect happiness soul and body on a physical heaven on earth so get rid of those notions of a bored bodiless spirits floating on clouds and playing harps that 
That wouldn't be all that exciting for me either, if that's really what heaven is like. Your body will be amazing and glorious and powerful, and you will experience eternal joy upon a physical earth. So heaven will be a physical reality. It will also, it will no longer contain any threats. Isn't that what really makes this world so trying? Because we can experience wonderful things, but there's always the threat that it'll be taken away, you know? The movie always ends, you know? The new car breaks down. The person we pledge our love to forever leaves. But not so in the age to come. At the end of verse 1, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. What is that? What does the sea represent? In the ancient world, the sea symbolized chaos and evil and peril and threats of danger as well as tribulations. By saying that the sea was no more, Jesus is saying that there's a day in the future when this world will no longer present anything, anything that threatens happiness and joy and full communion with God. There will be nothing to cause death or sorrow or pain. Nothing to lead you astray or cause you to have regrets. No one that you love can ever be taken away. So heaven will be a new creation. My friends, the life that you now know so intimately, a life of loss and grief, of regret and heartache and pain, where death intrudes and suffering is universal, that life will be forever finished one day. The sea will be no more. Tell me, honestly, isn't that what your heart longs for? Can you see how lifting your focus to view this heavenly reality smooths out all the curves in life? The important point for us is this. Heaven will be a new physical creation without any threats. Heaven will also be a city full of people made holy. We see this through John's eyes, that, that the heaven is more than just a restoration and renewal of this fallen creation. It's more than just a delightful place without chaos or peril. Look at what John sees in verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The phrase holy city, New Jerusalem, isn't so much the buildings, right? It's what? It's the inhabitants, the people made holy. Now the word holy conveys two things. One, it means that this new city has been set apart as holy um, for God's good purposes. And two, it means that the city will reflect God's moral perfection and beauty. All those who dwell there will be fully made righteous. Just as God is good and lovely and holy, so too will this, the people of this new holy city. Think about it, Christians, that holiness you long for, and if you're a genuine Christian, you long for holiness. But that same holiness that you long for, does it not frustrate the heck out of you? Guess what? It'll be fully yours one day. No longer will you have any lustful thought, thoughts. No longer will you say a careless word that you have to apologize for or be stingy with your time or harbor unforgiveness in your heart. That sin nature that clings so tightly to us, it'll be gone forever. Do you long for this in your life? 
one day, all that makes us impure and unable to be in God's presence, guess what? It'll be gone forever. I can't even picture what that will feel like. I'm so used to this sinfulness in me that just clings. We need to be spending time longing for that day. How else is this city described? It is described as coming down out of heaven from God. This is God's doing. Do you remember the Tower of, of Babel? Human beings in their arrogance thought they could build a giant tower up to God. And they didn't do it for God's glory. They did it to make a name for themselves. Look how ingenious we are. We can, we can even build a tower up to God. Contrast that with what John sees. John sees heaven coming down to earth from God. It is God who moves to move heaven to earth. This is the grace of God lavished upon the people of God. Now, how is this city of people described? It's amazing. Look at the end of verse 2. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The Bible uses many different images to describe the believer's relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our good shepherd. He is our Lord. He is our elder brother. He is our faithful king. And also, he is the bridegroom, and we, the church, are his bride. And this should be astounding to us. You know, nothing prepared me for what I was to experience as I stood at the front of the church and my bride, Leslie, walked through the large double doors at the back of the sanctuary, my face welled with joy just looking at her. As she walked down the aisles towards me, looking lovely in her wedding dress, the tears started to flow. First, it was just a little trickle down the cheek, but soon it was as if a faucet had been turned on. And looking back at the video, I looked pitiful. <laughs> and I was thankful that the tux was a rental. <laughs> now I know that the analogy of Jesus being the bridegroom and we, the church, being the bride can be a bit awkward. But the truth we are to see is astounding. There can be no greater intimacy on earth than between a groom and his bride. At least that's how it's supposed to be. The groom loves his bride so much that he carries her near to him in his own heart, always, always seeking to serve her in any way, sacrificing for her good, to cause her joy to increase, to cause her character to grow, to cause her inner beauty to magnify. He lives for her. And he will gladly lay down his life for her. And in the case of our Savior Jesus, well, that's exactly what he did. And so, there will be a day to come when we will experience a walking down the aisle, so to speak. And we will see Christ face to face. And we will look at ourselves and how he has adorned us with beauty and holiness and happiness and glory. And we will feel unworthy, 
but we will also feel oh so worthy. There's a day coming when we will enter our new home. God will send his holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now for the last delightful detail, and this should amaze us. God himself is coming down to be with his people. Not in a temple, you know, with some symbolic presence of a fire and smoke. Not with manna on the ground meant to point to heaven. He's coming down himself. Verse 3. John heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with, them, is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And look what he does. Do you not want to be in the presence of this God? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. I hope you hear what Jesus is saying. That's the one who's on the throne. He's saying God himself will be with us as our God. The words are emphatic. He doesn't just say God will be with us. He says God himself God himself, God won't send some angels as a delegation. God himself will dwell upon this new home on earth. Randy Alcorn makes this observation. God's glory will be the air we breathe, and we'll always breathe deeper to gain more of it. In the new universe, we'll never be able to travel far enough to leave God's presence if we could We'd never want to. However great the wonders of heaven, God himself is heaven's greatest prize. Today, few people are genuinely excited to be forever in God's glorious presence. They've been told a lie that heaven is no fun I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, sings one of the troubadours of our age, who happens to have a house out here. <laughs> Somehow we bought into the notion that heaven will be boring. We hear about how we'll forever enjoy God and celebrate him in everything that we do, and we hang our heads and think it doesn't sound like all that much fun. So why is it that we don't get too excited about dwelling with God and enjoying him forever? Even as Christians, why do we have this attitude? I think partly it's because we, we haven't yet been fully made ready for heaven. We're not ready for it. This fallen world is all we know, and we remain sinful. The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. 
We hear Jesus say, do not store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up treasure in heaven. And we say, yeah, I get it. But then we ring the register and max out the credit cards. Jesus says, you cannot serve both God and money. And we say, oh yeah, just watch me. So what are we to do in order to live delighting in the line, not the dot phase of our lives? Well, guess what? We can do what we're doing right now here today. Lift our eyes and behold the glory and goodness that God has planned for his people in the line phase of our lives. Let us soak in and delight in the grace of God that he has stored for us. And then we start riding the motorcycles of our lives with our eyes way out in front, lifted to heaven. And so when some sorrow comes our way that would normally cause you to suffer in self-pity, you're now able to see your sorrow as what? A signpost pointing to the lying reality of heaven to come and your need of it. And so you'll be able to say the sorrow was meant to point me to my Father in heaven and the eternal home he has for me. And when tempted to store up treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, use that temptation to point you to heaven. Lift your eyes to heaven and say, I need not place my hope for happiness in the dots that rust. For my happiness rests in the line of glory that God has for me in the age to come. Do you see how the delightful details of our eternal hope to come, how they're meant to help us to live with confidence and joy and power today? Those are the delightful details. Now for the persevering promises. It's crucial that we understand what God, that God has promised this to us. Why? Because if God's promises are as good as they are, then our hearts and minds will naturally be lifted to heaven and our lives will experience the smoothness and the exuberance of an expert motorcycle racer. First, Jesus promises that this new home well, it's as good as done. Verses five and six. And he who is seated on the throne, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. I wonder if John's mind was starting to drift off. And he's like, No, no write this down. Understand this, Jesus' promise that he's making all things new is so integral, it's so crucial that John is commanded to write it down so that we would have it today. Sometimes in our church staff meetings, I say, um, now write this down. And uh, I'm conveying to my team that what I'm saying is important uh, and the rest they freely ignore. John wants us to convey to the entire church the promise that Jesus is going to make all things new. He wants, he, he's making sure we hear that as the body of Christ today. And in verse 6, we, it begins by saying, it is done. That great day in the future is so certain to happen that Jesus says, past tense, it is done. How is it that he could say such a thing? I mean, if I were to tell you that my St. Louis baseball Cardinals are going to win the World Series this year, that it is done, you would roll your eyes at me like John Horcher's doing right there. There we go. But Jesus can guarantee the new home to come. Why? Because he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, and yep, Omega is the last. 
Jesus applies titles to himself that refer to God's absolute authority, sovereignty over all the events of history. And so on the basis of who Jesus is, he's the Alpha and the Omega, we can be assured that just as God brought that first creation in Genesis 1, he too will bring the second recreation in Revelation 21. The next promise is at the end of verse 6. It's beautiful. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Remember the Samaritan woman at the well who was thirsty for physical water and Jesus talked to her and he, he knew her soul was thirsty too. And he told her, I'm the living water. If you drink of me, you will experience eternal life. That's what we're talking about here. In the next chapter, in Revelation 22, verse 1, we see that, that the spring of living water is a river that flows from the throne of God through the middle of the streets of this great city to come. The imagery highlights the life-giving presence of God. Do you hear that? The life-giving presence. When God is in your life, life happens. Goodness happens. It is important to note that this life-giving presence of God is a free gift of his grace. It comes, what? Without payment. You and I could never begin to buy God's blessings. And so forever to experience it, it must come as a gift without payment. Our receipt depends not on our worthiness, but on what? Our thirst. To the thirsty... It is given without cost. Let me ask you, are you thirsty? Are you humble enough to admit that what you thirst for, you cannot get for yourself? Only God can give you the water of life. And he gives not to the proud, but to the thirsty. The next promise is in verse 7, the promise for those who conquer. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Remember, the, whole, the main theme in the entire Bible is what? I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be your God, you will be my people. I will make sure it happens. Just watch me work. Watch me work. And here we see, to the one who conquers, they will have this heritage. The words... Conquered can also be overcomes. The one who overcomes will have, a, have an heritage or an inheritance. I will be his God and he will be my son. Now remember in the ancient days, it was the firstborn son who received pretty much all of the inheritance. And so what God promises all Christians, whether you're a male or a female, is firstborn son status. And who's the firstborn son? Jesus. We're given the status of none other than Jesus himself. The full blessing that belongs to the firstborn son is God's promise to you, whether you're male or female. This new home with all its eternal joys and blessings and intimacy with God the Father is yours. Now, Jesus says that this is for the one who conquers. These words can kind of seem to contradict verse 6. How can the one on the throne, uh, seated on the throne says, all you need is thirst? And this new home is yours without payment. But now there's a addendum about conquering. What is this about? Well, I think it has to do with the more you understand how God has satisfied your thirst without cost, the more we press on in this world as those who are conquerors. 
That's God's desires for us. The seven churches that he is writing to, John, were compromising their faith, and they were cowering in fear. The sea was pressing in on them, right? They were in danger of turning from their first love, Jesus Christ. Those seven churches would have received these words as a strong call to persevere. Look at this grace of God towards you. Now go and be a conqueror. Jesus has promised a day when the sea will be no more. He waits for you like a, like a groom anxious to be with his bride. So don't give up. This is yours by faith. Instead, shout with joy, be still, oh my soul. Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is making all things new. Jesus is making all things new. And because of this certain promise, I will overcome. I will be one who conquers. I will not live up. I will not let up. I will not give in. I will not compromise with the sinful culture that I live in. Nor will I cower in fear. By the grace of God and the power of God, I will live not for the dot, but for the line. Now, after these promises, there is a word of warning. Not all who... Not all will enter into the holy bliss of this new home. Verse 8, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, and he could have thrown in a bunch of other things like tax cheat, you know. Um, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, the truth is, heaven will be populated with former cowards and faithless and yes even murderers and sexually immoral people who have been forgiven through the cross of Christ I think I'll be one of those people they will enjoy heaven because in faith they repented of their ways and trusted in God's forgiveness that comes only through the cross of Christ now the list in verse 8 is a warning to all that this life this dot life you have matters for all eternity. If you wish to deny your maker and use the one dot of a life he has given you for your own idolatrous gain, then there will be a second death. Just as the believer will receive a second life, the unbeliever will receive a second death to come. As the writer to the Hebrews says, it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Please understand this. No one likes to talk about hell, but understand that hell is the place where those who say no to God in this dot phase of their life, they get their wish for all eternity in the line phase of life. That's how important this life is. And so if you haven't given your life to Christ, now's the time. He died for your sins so that they may be forgiven and to make you a child of God, that this inheritance would be yours. All you need is a thirsty soul, and this grace is yours. So this morning we've seen that we are to live our short dot lives with our eyes lifted and focused upon our eternal line, that our home that is to come. We've looked at the delightful details and the persevering promises. I want to close with two points of application. The first is this, we are to look in, and the second is we are to look out. 
This first point of application is that the more we look up, the more we delight in heaven, the more we want to look inside ourselves so, so that we may press on and grow spiritually. We can't use the grace of God to, to keep on sinning. If we're going to experience the beauty and joy and gloriousness of heaven to come, let's put that into our lives today. Now, a good example of that is from sports is Derek Jeter. Has anybody been watching that ESPN documentary that came out this last few weeks uh, on the great Yankees shortstop? It's titled The Captain. Jeter, as a kid, longed to play for the Yankees. He was going to play for the Yankees. It was heaven for him. His eyes were always lifted up to being a Yankee someday, and it affected how he lived life in the present. Every picture you see of Derek Jeter as a kid, he's wearing some sort of Yankees apparel. And he wasn't just a poser. He put in the hard hours, practicing day in and day out, even inside during those really long, cold Michigan winters. And so when he became one of the youngest New York Yankees ever, not just to put on a uniform, but to be a strong leader on the team from day one, it was no surprise to those who knew him. Being a leader on the team who showed maturity and poise and wisdom beyond his years was because his life was not lived for the dot, but for the line of being a New York Yankee. That's the picture for the Christian life. With our lives focused on the prize to come, we work hard in the present to mature. Because one day we will be fully clothed in love and righteousness. When we live life on the line, we delight to put on love and righteousness now in the dot phase of our lives. Does this make sense? You know, this is why we're totally committed to discipleship here at Grace Church. Listen, if you are a Christian, then Jesus' plan for you is lifelong discipleship. Not church attendance, but life-on-life discipleship with a group of other Christians, male or female, in your life. His goal is that you would be a disciple who would one day make disciples. The process goes on and on. This fall, we're launching more discipleship groups here at Grace Church. And so if you're not in a discipleship group, we want to encourage you to start making that step. If you, are, if you call Grace Church home and you're a Christian, then you need to be in one of these discipleship groups. Now, perhaps you're here and you're thinking, I don't need to be discipled. Well, there you go. There's your proof that you need to be discipled. <laughs> See, mature Christians know they need discipleship. They need other people speaking to, into their lives and other people praying for you and you praying for them, sharing life together. We've had two years of discipleship and it's transformed the men and women of Grace Church magnificently. And you need this. And so for the next few months, if you're not in a discipleship group, I want you to start developing a deep thirst for it. Take time to prayerfully ask God to show you your need for spiritual growth. No more half measures in our lives. And ask for help wrapping your head around the goodness of discipleship. And then in December, press on and join a group. Second, the more we look up, the more we're to look out at our hurting world. And so we can work 
to see others come to faith in Christ, to understand the dot and the line aspect of their lives. One morning in 1932, residents of Sydney, Australia, woke to find one word written in chalk on the sidewalks of their city in beautiful script, the word eternity. From that moment on, for the next 35 or so years, every morning, Sydney siders, that's what they call themselves, would wake up and find inscribed on walls and on the sidewalks the words eternity over and over, eternity, eternity. About 500,000 times across those years, the word appeared on the streets of Sydney. The man who wrote them, an anonymous person, had become something of a legend. Who's doing this? It's crazy. Well, a newspaper eventually broke the story. It turns out that Mr. Arthur Stace, who had once been a petty criminal and an alcoholic, was converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the weight of eternity began to press down upon him, and he was anxious that the people of Sydney would begin to feel it for themselves. So he kept writing the word eternity, eternity, eternity. Every day he devoted himself to helping others live out for the line and not for the dot. So to us. Christian, let us be those who live with heaven in view and maybe be the ones who point our neighbors to the eternal hope to come, the only hope, which is Christ Jesus. Let us be those who delight in the promises of God to come. Let us live our lives focused on the eternal line not the temporal dot. Oh, that eternity and the hope of the new home to come will be written upon our hearts and upon our minds. My friends, God is making all things new. To the thirsty, he has given eternal life through Jesus, the water of life. Are you thirsty? Lift up your eyes to heaven and drink. Let's pray. I think we all need to pinch ourselves. I mean, this seems like way too good to be true. Fake news, we want to call it. It's not. It's the only news that's really true, that really has meaning, that really can change us. You are a good God. Thank you for coming down. Thank you for, this, for sending your son down to earth to die for us. And thank you that he's coming again to bring a new heaven and earth. May we live with this in view. May our lives be forever changed because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.